Tonight's passage is from Titus, chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Again, that's Titus, chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Hear your God's word. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, And the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is God's Word. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together before we come to the word. Oh God, help us now as we come to your word. We want to hear from you. We want you to be magnified by your spirit through your word. And so teach us this evening, move our minds and grow our delight in you. May we be not just hearers of this word, but doers of the word. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Built-in protection. A built-in protection. We all like built-in protections, I think we could say. Why? Because we know that built-in protection is for our own good. It's something that's good for us. Built-in protection. Protection. Let me explain. For example, since 1998, homes in Illinois have been built and required to be built with smoke alarms, smoke detectors installed. It's a built-in protection for our own good so that we can sleep well at night. Or how about since 1999, it would be challenging for you to find a way to purchase a car that was not made with an airbag, okay? An airbag system is required, a built-in protection for our own good, for our own safety, so we can drive with peace of mind at high speeds. In God's word tonight, we see a built-in protection. And it's for something that's far greater than just a house or a car, or even our physical health. Tonight we see a built-in protection for the spiritual health of the church. Now, you, you may be here tonight and you're joining us this evening and you're not possibly affiliated with this church or even this faith, and I welcome you. I'm glad you're here. But I hope by the end of the message here and our time in God's word, that you would be persuaded or encouraged to see the surpassing value of what is being protected here in this text. 
There's nothing more important, more valuable than what's being protected here. And so what we're going to see tonight could be summarized in in one sentence. Here it is. God-given authority to rebuke false teaching is for the good of all. God-given authority to rebuke false teaching is for the good of all. It is the built-in protection that's designed for the church. And it's designed by God through his inspired word. So what a joy for us to put ourselves under the word this evening and spend some time in a unique, strange passage. Maybe you've never heard anything like this in the Bible before, but we're going to jump into it together. And I encourage you to take your Bibles out. Stay in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. The structure of this text is like that of an apple. If you bite into it, you're going to taste the flavor all at once. There's no layers that you pull back. It's all there right in your face right away. And so the way that we're going to work through this text tonight is bouncing around a bit, but doing that in order to make sense of what's here and to clearly understand it. So there are three distinct flavors or or three questions that are being answered in these six verses. I believe it encompasses everything we see here in these six verses. And so that's how we're going to walk through this text. Here are the three questions. Who, what, and why? Who are these false teachers? What must be done? And why must it be done? Why is it needed? Who are these false teachers? What must be done? And why is it needed? And each of these questions, what they're going to do is build off each other. And what Paul's doing here is convincing us that God-given authority to rebuke false teaching is for the good of all. And so let's jump into the word. Keep your Bible open. This is, again, Titus chapter 1, 10 through 16. Who are these false teachers? If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Dan Hibben preach on the previous literary context. And what you saw was that Crete, where this letter was being written to, was in need of faithful elders for the purpose of establishing order over the church. And Pastor Hibben showed us that these elders have both a distinct character and competency. They are to be above reproach. And take a look at chapter 1, verse 9. He says that they must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. So these elders proclaim the word. They hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. They proclaim it and they illustrate it with their ways. Their character is above reproach. But Paul, the the author of this letter, shows us that They're not only proclaimers of this word, but they are also protectors of it. Look at the second half of verse 9. It says, they are also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so what we're doing is we're moving in the letter from the proclaiming to the protecting. From who the elders are to who the false teachers are that are prompting the need for these elders to be appointed. And so look at how our text begins in verse 10. We'll read it together. It says, For, 
meaning the reasons, the grounding of reasons why the elders must be appointed in this way. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. There were some problems in Crete. And Paul zeroes in on who these people are by identifying a large group of them as affiliated or associated with the circumcision party. Who are these people, you might ask? It's likely that they identified as Jewish Christians who insisted on continued adherence to the Mosaic law. They continue to adhere to man-made traditions. We've been talking about this in the, in the morning in our series in Mark 7. Or, or even Jewish myths as necessary for the Christian faith. And that's supported if you look down at verse 14. It references some of those things. And so that, that's a larger portion of this group. But he says, especially those of the circumcision party, which means that there's those who aren't affiliated or associated with the circumcision party. Implying that they're a major part of the problem, but they're not the entirety of it. And so what we see is there's a widespread problem of false teaching going on in the church. Verse 10 begins to show us a bit about who they are, but let's continue to see who these people are. The next thing we learn is the reputation that they are associated with. So take a look at verse 12. One of the more interesting verses. I'm sure you weren't expecting to hear a verse like this this evening. But verse 12, it seems that Paul is quoting someone, and the person he is quoting is widely considered to be somebody named Epimenides. Epimenides is a 6th century BC philosopher, poet. He was somewhat of a legendary figure from Crete. They, a hometown hero, if you will. And so he quotes their own hometown hero, <laughs> a people of their own. And this, these are Epimenides' words. He says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, Lazy gluttons. Wow. Pretty harsh. And then Paul follows that up in verse 13 with, this testimony is true. (laughs) I mean, and can you imagine this being read to everybody? So Paul quotes the esteemed hometown prophet. But, But why does he do this? He does it in order to identify the cultural influence that is at play among these false teachers. This is a part of the reputation that they're associated with. This is helping us understand who they are and why it's a problem. It's incredibly blunt. Paul doesn't hold back, but to be fair, it's Epimenides himself who who doesn't hold back. And in some way, it seems that the culture, it, it must have been so pervasive that it was in some sense widely agreed that this testimony would be true. There was some merit to these words. It made me think of an unofficial slogan that caught on. I I grew up in the Hyde Park neighborhood in Chicago, and the University of Chicago um, students championed an unofficial slogan. This was it. The University of Chicago, where fun comes to die. (laughs) 
And they put that on t-shirts. It was not the best marketing material for new students visiting seniors in high school. Not flattering, but well, well agreed upon in some sense, even by their own culture. I believe the schools tried to change that reputation. So if you graduated from U of C recently, I'm sure it's different now. But it was well accepted years ago. Or how about Las Vegas? What, stay, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. We can understand, I think, how certain places or cultures can develop certain reputations. And although not a positive reputation, it can still be accepted and widely agreed upon by the people. This is the cultural context that we're given in Crete from one of their own heroes. And Paul latches on to it. He's incredibly persuasive and incredibly aware of what's going on, that he latches onto it to make his point. Who are these false teachers? They resemble more of this culture than Christ. There's one last place that identifies who these false teachers are, and if you take a look, it's verses 15 and 16. And it begins with this sort of saying or maxim, and it says this, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Again, we don't know the specifics of the teaching that was happening in Crete. We weren't there. We don't have an audio recording of some of it. But we do know that Paul was against the teaching that we see referenced in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, if you were to turn back there later this evening, it's described as those with seared consciences. Some of the language here is even very similar. Who devote themselves to false teaching, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain foods. And it seems to be something similar here. He's saying these people, he's identifying them as having these seared consciences. They are defiled. He doesn't want the congregation to follow them. They need to be identified for who they are. And look at verse 16. He says, they profess to know God with their words, but they deny him with their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. It's a harsh, it's a candid take from Paul but I believe it's a, it's a needed reminder, even for us tonight. Maybe you're here and you're not a believer, but you've been burned in some sense by the church in the past. In verse 16, you read it, it makes you want to start clapping your hands and say, amen, yep, I've seen this. I can attest to someone saying one thing and living another way. Proclaiming one thing and living another way as a Christian, can be extremely harmful, especially for those who are following such leaders. But what I want us to see is what Paul's desire is here. And look back at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul's desire is that these Christians would have a knowledge of the truth, that they would, this head knowledge, this understanding of truth, sound doctrine, would accord 
or be in harmony with godliness and how they live. He calls for their belief to be in harmony with their behavior. And that's the calling of the Christian. That's what we're all called to. And that lack of congruency between those things is incredibly damaging for our witness. And it causes issues in the church. And so I think it's important for us to ask this evening, is this true of me? Now, our context is different. We have thousands of years of church history, creeds, confessionals that have helped us maintain and hold on to the unity of sound, what we believe is sound and sound doctrine, who Jesus is, who God is, the Holy Spirit. We have elders already in place here at College Church. This was an environment where there seemed to be gospel communities that elders weren't even yet appointed. So these are two, it's not a one-to-one relationship. But the point still must be taken. Do I profess to know God by word and yet deny him by works? I know ways in which I am guilty of this. I think we can all agree we are guilty of this and have been guilty of this at some point. But may we desire and pray for godly character, godliness. Sunday at church, yes, but Monday at home with our kids. Tuesday when we're talking to our neighbors. Wednesday, when we're on a work trip, we want the knowledge of truth that accords with godliness. And when we fall short of this standard, may we be the first to call it out and to acknowledge it. Why? Because that's a people who are fit for good works, a congruency. We've seen who these false teachers are, but we're going to keep moving along into the second point. What must be done? What does Paul prescribe? So let's read at the beginning of verse 10 again. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. That's who they are. Now, what must be done? It's there in verse 11. They must be silenced. And look down at verse 13. After the Epimenides quote, and Paul says this testimony is true, Paul says, therefore, rebuke them sharply. So what must be done? Titus and the elders here, remember that's who it's being written to, Titus, and it's in the context of appointing elders to rebuke, are given the authority to silence these false teachers and to rebuke them sharply. That's what must be done. A stern response is needed to match the urgency of the situation in Crete. It's most likely that there's multiple Christian communities here and even households that are referenced And the church needs this order. And so Paul's point is that one of the important roles of elder, as we talked about last week, yes, to proclaim, to hold on to the trustworthy word, but to protect it and to identify and silence those who would be teaching contrary to it. They are concerned with what is being taught in the church. 
Now, some of you may read this and immediately think to articles or headlines that you've seen in the news where men in church leadership have abused their power for selfish gain. They've wrongfully silenced others. Those who even may use this passage to support their own selfish agenda. Those who use this passage and say one thing with their words and live another way privately that is contrary to the gospel. And it needs to be said that that is incredibly destructive. It's why many around us who are probably not in this room want nothing to do with the church. It's why many walk away confused about who God must be after experiencing a sort of leadership like that. Rightfully so. And maybe even you've experienced this in the past. And what, what I want you to see from this text, this text shows us that God protects his people. That's who God is. He protects his people specifically from that kind of leadership. You see, God's design is to carefully seek out elders who have walked the walk in verse 5 through 9 before they talk the talk here in 10 through 16. These are upright men, above reproach, disciplined, self-controlled, who are protecting the church family from those who would lead the people astray. This is rebuking and silencing from these men. This thing is a good thing for all of us. This is the built-in protection that we need. And what I want you to see is this is God's intention. It's his good design. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is sent by Jesus, a servant of God. And he is declaring to set up this God-given authority through the office of elder to rebuke and silence false teaching for the good of all. So we've seen who. We've seen who these false teachers are. We've seen what. What must be done. And now we're going to finish with why it is needed. So let's take a look again at verse 11. They must be silenced. That's what must be done, and here is why it is needed. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Church families are being led astray. And the second half of verse 14 says it's the commands of people who turn from the truth. So there's a movement of people that are turning from the truth of the gospel because of these false teachers. Why is it needed? Because there's nothing more dangerous than to leave the truth of the gospel. What is the gospel? It begins with God, who is the one true and only God, the creator, sustainer, director of all things. He made you, he made me. And we are meant to be in relationship with him. But sin, 
Sin distorts that relationship, and sin has a relational impact. Our sin has separated us from God. And the Bible teaches us that sin has a consequence, and the penalty for our sin, the wages of our sin, is death. And God, who is a just God, cannot let that payment go unpunished. But the good news, the gospel that we need to hold on to is that God, in his mercy, sent Jesus, his son, perfectly obedient, fully human, fully divine. He died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin. He took the the death that we deserve and he rose from the grave victorious. He conquered it and he offers life to you and me, eternal life and fellowship with God. There's hope right now for us in the gospel message, a living hope, following Jesus, submitting to him as our Lord and Savior. We have forgiveness of sins. We have fellowship with God. We can know God and be known by him. This is the good news of the gospel. And to lose this is to lose everything. And you can sense the urgency of protecting this. This is what it's all about. There's nothing more important than this message. And so there's nothing more crucial for the health of the church, for our health, than to hold fast to the gospel, to sound doctrine, to the truth. Now, I'm I'm done up here. I'm going to close. But I want to close with this. Take a look at the end of verse 13. Why is this God-granted authority to rebuke false teaching needed? Because it is for the good of all. And I want to help you see what all means, what Scripture is showing us for the good of all. Second half of 13, that they may be sound in faith. Now, is he talking about the false teachers or those led astray by them? You may point out there is some ambiguity. There is, but it's certainly talking to those who have either endorsed or been taken over by a false gospel, a false message. They've been led away from the truth. It's for the good, not only of the church, but also for those seemingly hijacking the message for their own earthly gain. Even those who hijack a crashed car and they're driving it and they're spinning out and they crash. They're hit with a force and an impact of an airbag system going off and their life can be saved by this built-in protection. Even those hijacking the car. So too the godly rebuke of elders protecting the trustworthy word, holding fast to the gospel can save not only the church, but the very one seeking to hijack it. Wow. There is ultimate protection from the penalty of sin in Jesus. There is a refuge from death in Jesus. There is hope for eternal life with God in Jesus. And God has designed his church to help us Hold on to the truth, this truth, the gospel. 
God-given authority to rebuke false teaching is for the good of all. And so may we thank God for this protection over us, and may we always strive to hold on to the gospel, the hope for sinners, the hope for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you call yourself the chief shepherd. We thank you that you remind us that we are your people, the sheep of your pasture. You are a God who protects. We thank you for the protection we have in Christ. We thank you for the church. And Lord, we pray even here, our college church family, that you help us to live another week holding fast to the gospel, that our knowledge of the truth would also accord with godliness, that we would witness to the great God that we serve, that many would come to know you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.